Here's a question for you. I want you to see if you can finish this phrase for me. What God has joined together... I, I, somebody was King James over here, but we got close to it. Let no man tear asunder. Let no man tear apart. These are words that we're all very familiar with because they are the kind of standard words that basically conclude a marriage ceremony. Now here's the question. While everyone, or virtually everyone, may have said them, how serious are we about those words? And that's a huge thing. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 19 today. We've been, we were in Matthew. We took a little hiatus from Matthew. We're coming back for a little bit, going to do some different stuff at Easter, and then we will finish the book of Matthew. Um, and as we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 19, what we find in Matthew 19 is that uh, Jesus wants to do a little home economics lesson. Now, for most of you in this service, you have no idea what home economics is because I don't teach it in school anymore. But when you were growing up like I did or like your parents or maybe your grandparents were, home economics was a subject in school. And so Jesus talks about home economics. And today, what we're going to look at in verses 1 through 12 is Jesus' teachings on marriage and divorce. Next week, we'll look at uh, some thoughts that Jesus has on the preciousness of kids and the importance of shooting young men in the right direction. Because you know what? Young men will get crooked without any help. And so how do we shoot them in the right direction? So Jesus goes into a little home economics conversation in Matthew chapter 19. But when we deal with the issue that we're dealing with today related to marriage and divorce, uh, we have to understand that what the Bible says is not in line with current realities. Many people think that what the Bible has to say uh, is so far out of date with cultural expectations as to be completely irrelevant. But if we believe that God who created the institution of marriage has spoke on, uh, on the institution, God's word doesn't change. It's still the authority. And here's the thing that's just terrible. You know, the statistics are that one out of every two marriages that will happen in the United States today will end in divorce. That's pretty pathetic. The challenge is that there are people who say that the divorce rate in the church is no worse and no better than it is outside the church. That's actually patently false, and it depends on how you do the statistics. Uh, most churches um, have a membership that far exceeds its actual attendance. So the question becomes, who would we claim as members in good standing at our church? Well, it wouldn't be 750 people. It might be 300 folks. And so when people fill out these surveys, you've got 450 people that might claim our church that have never been here in 30 years, but they're, they're a member at Northside Baptist Church, and they've also been married and divorced four times. And so when people have the opportunity to self-identify as a Christian or a church member or a church attender, even if it's not in their practice, well, you can see how that kind of skews the statistics. You know, you just look anecdotally about, uh, at the marriages around you, and you look at your friends outside the church and your friends inside the church, and who has a higher divorce rate? Absolutely, without fail, it's going to be the people outside the church. Because the statistic is for people who actually are involved in church, not people who, whose name is on a roll, for people who are involved in a church, you are six times less likely to get divorced than somebody whose name is just on a roll. There is something that is a preservative uh, of the act of marriage by actively being engaged with worshiping God and trying to live out his word. That's hugely important for us to say. And I'm tired of hearing people saying that the divorce rate in the church is the same it is outside the church. No, church will save your marriage. It will. And so I have to, I have to, be, uh, I have to issue a quick disclaimer. Many of you know deacons did a wonderful service. They sent Marcy and I to a pastor's and wives retreat last weekend. 
So I don't want any of you putting together that Marcy and I went on away on a retreat last week, and now I'm preaching on divorce. And so they, we, had a, we had a wonderful, absolutely good time. And she said, you know, people are going to start doing the math. We go away, and you come back and preach on divorce. I'm like, Matthew 19 was next. We're just dealing with it in consecutive order. But here's the deal. There is no denying that when we talk about marriage and divorce, this is, this is a touchy subject. And, 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 and honestly, if we're not preaching straight through a book of the Bible... Uh, the temptation would be to skip this because there's so much damage that has been done. But here's the issue. I think we need to take great care in addressing this issue because there have been people who have been hurt by marriages that have failed. There are people who have been hurt by churches that have not helped them when they're hurting. But not only must we approach it with care, we have to, uh, we have to approach it with some degree of confidence because we believe that God has spoken and what he has spoken is not inconceivable. It's not something that we can't understand. It's good for our instruction. So we want to balance an approach that is careful, but also confident. Not watering down our convictions, but finding that way to balance truth and grace. And so in a world that when it comes to the issue of marriage and divorce has muddled morals, We have to speak with clear conviction. And you'll see three points in your listening guide, in your bulletin. And the first is that a commitment to marriage is a commitment to God's original design. And I would say only design. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 19. Which, by the way, the scripture will be on the screen behind me. It's also page 696 in the Pew Bible in front of you. We want you to see that this is coming straight from God's word. This is not my opinion because my opinion's not worth listening to. Verse, uh, chapter 19, verse 1 and 2. When Jesus had finished this instruction, he departed from Galilee, and he went to the region of Judea, across the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. This is a very important transition in Matthew's gospel, verses 1 and 2. Back in Matthew, uh, Bible students, you can take note of this. Back in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, right after Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus begins to reveal that, hey guys, listen, you're right, you're right, and here's what's going to happen. We're going to go to Jerusalem where I'm going to be betrayed and killed. He starts to turn his attention from ministering in Judea originally, that when the heat got turned up, he went to Galilee in the north, and now what happens in Matthew 19 verses 1 and 2? Jesus starts to turn around, and he starts to bring the journey back down south heading on his way to Jerusalem. And Jesus is not kind of going incognito. He is going and he does what Jesus does. He heals and he teaches. And it says that on his way, marching to his death, there are large crowds that continue to follow him. It's amazing to see Jesus' bravado and determination knowing full well what is about to happen. You don't see any grudging, half-hearted, this is not a, journey that he's intimidated to take. He goes, and he does what he does on his way. Verse 3, it says that um, some Pharisees approached him to test him, and they asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? They are looking for the lowest common denominator to be able to be, um, to pursue divorce, and so they are trying to trap Jesus. And kind of like American politics, Jewish theology had different um, parties, there was the Rabbi Hillel party. Um, he was the Bernie Sanders of his day. He was the liberal. And so he would say that divorce was possible for anything. If Guys, if you have a wandering eye and you see a lady that is 
younger and more attractive, it is okay for you to divorce your wife because of that. That's what the Hillel camp would say. It was a very patriarchal system. If she burned your dinner, you could divorce her. It was divorce for any reason. And listen, we laugh at that, but they actually had a law that said, in King James language, if she burneth the dinner, you know, you have just causeth to divorce her. It's terrible. On the other hand, you had Rabbi Shammai, who would have been the conservative. And he would say, you know, um, divorce is still, it's okay, but it's, it's, it's um, very um, kind of exclusive situations where that would happen. And then how many of you have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Dead Sea Scrolls? There was a sect of Judaism called the Qumran community. And the Qumran community were the fundamentalists. They said, absolutely no divorce. Not going to happen. And so when they came to test him, to ask him this question, of course, the Pharisees are kind of playing their hand that they were the party of Hillel. Is it okay for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? Here's the other thing that they were trying to kind of catch him in. Jesus had a cousin named John the Baptist, okay? And by the time we get to Matthew 19, where's John the Baptist? Six feet underground. He was beheaded. You know why? Because he talked about marriage and divorce. And Herod, who was the leader of the day, had taken uh, his nephew, cousins. Uh, they were from West Virginia. Don't worry about it. And uh, he, had taken, he, had, he had taken someone he was related to, and he was, in a, he was in a marital sexual relationship with a person he was related to. And John said, it's not right. And Herod uh, arranged for his head to be removed. So they know... Hey, listen, we don't like this Jesus guy. People are following him. They're listening to him more than they're listening to us. So let's see if we can get Jesus to make the same mistake that John did, to speak about marriage. Maybe he'll get on the wrong side of Herod, and maybe Herod will take care of Jesus with force. Man, it's really shrewd. You've got to be careful. These people were snakes. And so while they're looking for the minimal grounds for divorce, Jesus, instead of answering their question, goes back to the original, original intention of marriage. And so in verses 4 through 6, he gives the answer. He says, haven't you read, he replied, that he, God, who created them in the beginning, made them male and female. And Jesus also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, man must not separate. He did, Jesus doesn't answer their question. So yeah, I'm with, I'm with Shammai on this. Or, you know, yeah, uh, Hillel didn't have my vote. Or, I'm going to stick with Qumran on this. He, instead of giving his opinion, what's he do? He goes back to God's word. Just ask you. When you have a decision to make, do you poll your Facebook friends? Listen, they're no smarter than you are. And you may be really smart, you know, but they may not give you good advice. And the advice that they give you may not be godly advice, it may be worldly advice. Do you go to the scriptures for counsel? And I think what Jesus does here in his example, they say, hey, you know, are you Donald Trump? Are you Hillary Clinton? Are you, no, no. What's the word say? How does the Bible inform what we're going to do in this situation? He goes back to the scriptures. He doesn't get pulled into their trap. And so when we talk about marriage being God's idea, I think there's a couple things here. I, I think there's five little sub-points here that are important for you to understand. Number one, the Bible leaves us no other options. The Bible leaves us no other options. By quoting Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, uh, Jesus has done something by showing God's original design and his intention. Because if God wanted man to be alone, to be solitudinous for all of the days of his life, he would have created one man and been done with it. 
If God had intended for homosexuality to be the norm, God would not have just created one man. He would have created two men. If God had designed for polygamy to be his design, he would have created one man and, God forbid, two women. Or, you know, one woman and two men. It's not, it doesn't get any better if you reverse it. You know, what woman wants two husbands? What husband wants two wives? And so there are no options. He made one man and one woman. Here's the thing that's crazy. You go back to Genesis 1 and 2, and you, get, you begin to see that this is not just a circumstance. Because he says, Genesis 1, God talking about Adam and Eve, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Here's the question. Who was Adam's father and mother that he was leaving? Why in the world put that in the scriptures? Because God was setting up a pattern of one man, one woman for life. Adam's like, all right, I see the woman and I'm, I'm ready to cleave, but who am I, who am I leaving? Nobody. That, that instruction didn't really actually have application to Adam the way that it does for us because God was establishing a pattern and showing us that there was no other option besides one man and one woman. Now here's something that's interesting. I need a... I need some kids, and all of our kids are probably downstairs. All right. Do you want to be a kid? Do you, let me see your fingernails first. All right, here you go. Hold on to that. And then, uh, Ben, let me see your fingernails. No cheating. Do you, have, do you have a pocket knife on you? Don't you pull it out if you do. All right, here's what, here's what I've done. <coughs> and listen, you're going to be able to do this, but it's, it's the illustration kind of works, okay? These are two sheets of paper that have been glued together. And it's tacky, really bad um, glue stick glue. So, you know, it's not the best. My original idea was, was going to take just one little drop of super glue and, and see if Ben would come up here and let me glue his pinky finger and his thumb together and make him stand still for about 15 seconds. But then I thought he would look like he's had a horrible accident while he's trying to eat barbecue. And so uh, I wasn't, wasn't going to do that to him. Although that might be pretty effective. You may be able to, you know, feed yourself well. Here's the deal. Just do your best wi- without steaming it and trying to put a blade in it. Try to tear those two pieces, pieces of paper apart without really messing something up. <laughs> you can do it, but here's the point, okay? If we had taken rubber cement or we had taken um, super glue and we put those papers together, it'd be, it'd be a little harder to pull apart than it would with just a little sticky, sticky glue. Because here's what happens. When God says, uh, listen, don't tear apart what God has joined together. And what we're talking about is the second point about the cleaving imagery. The, the, the word for cleave means to cement or to glue together. So what happens when you have two well-glued pieces of paper together and you try to separate them? There's a little bit of this one that's going to get stuck on this one. And there's a little bit of this one that's going to be stuck on this one. I don't, I, I don't care. Well, I do care, okay? But I, I don't care how bad your relationship situation is. As bad as you feel like you need to get out of Dodge, it is not going to be a clean break ever. It doesn't happen. Just out of curiosity, how many of you have a friend, family member, somebody that you're close to that's been touched by divorce? They're still dealing with it, aren't they? In some way, shape, or form, they are. And so God is saying, when you are glued together, you cannot separate that without doing irreparable damage. We need, to, we need to talk about that more. 
you know, just recently, there was a young couple came to uh, our office. They don't go to our church. They just were looking for a place to get married. They'd known each other for a month, and they were 23, so they obviously know more than anybody else in this room. And after four weeks of knowing each other, <coughs> uh, meeting at a bar, they wanted to find a minister who would marry them. And there was just no way in the world that they had the maturity to be able to do that. And I said, you know, we're all about investing in your marriage, not your ceremony. You get so many people, man, they want a big fat ceremony and they don't invest one dime into their marriage. I said, we'll invest into your marriage before you're married. And um, their response was, we're not really concerned about, we're, we're in the moment. We're not concerned about whether it works out. This is what we want to do right now because there's always a back door. What do you know about that couple? Could they, could they go the distance? Yeah, God could do something and, and change their mind. But when you go in knowing that you've got an escape plan, what happens the first time she <laughs> burns the dinner? Or she, what's the first time the fight is really bad? You're out. You're gone. And so this cleave imagery is important. It's telling. You don't want to try to tear apart something that's been glued together. He also talks about this one flesh imagery. Here's the thing that's crazy, because like church people lie. You know, we'll have people that will come up to me and they'll say, oh, you know what? Yeah, your boy, he looks like you. And then at the same day, someone will go up to Marcy and say, well, you know, your boy, he looks like you. They can't look like me and like her at the same time. What in the world is going on? Here's one of the things that's just amazing when God talks about this one flesh union. And this one flesh union is a whole lot more than just sexuality. That's part of it. Um, biologically, the parts fit together. That's an argument against homosexuality. Uh, God made sexuality for procreation, for the propagation of the species. Homosexuality makes us extinct in one generation. I don't know where the evolutionists are that are opposed to homosexuality. This is not good for the species. It's a dead end. But his point in this one flesh union is, here's the thing that's amazing. You take any family and you look at mom and dad and you look at their kids and you see them. And you hear them in their voice and in their mannerisms because the two are no longer no, two, are no longer two they're one. And you see that in the fruit of the womb, the fruit of children. You see two that have become one in this child that is created. And number four, it is God who does the joining. And I love the way it says this. This is what God has joined together, let not man tear apart. Um, there's actually a definite article there. So what the God... Not a God, what the God has put together. And then there is no article before man. So it is merely a man. What the God has put together, let not a man. The God, mere man. What the God has put together, let not mere man take apart. If God has joined it together, we don't have the opportunity to redefine it because he's the one who created it. He's the one that has that prerogative. And so no matter how you entered into marriage, whether you came in as a faithful follower of Christ or a pagan, whether your marriage was arranged by your parents or um, uh, defined by mutual desire, whether you entered in wisely or foolishly, whether you entered in sincerely or insincerely, with great commitment or with no commitment at all, whether you entered in selfishly or selflessly, God's design for marriage is that it is a permanent union until the death of your spouse, and that is not an indictment for murder. God wants you to be with your spouse forever. And the reason about this is not because, you know, I can't help but think about politics because marriage will become a debate in all of the political season. We don't do this because we're old-fashioned. 
We don't do this because this is the way we were raised. We do this because we believe that marriage and the defining of marriage is a gospel issue. Because when you go to Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, we see that marriage is a picture of God and the gospel. As husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. And listen, that, that, people think that submit word is really a bad word. It's a four-letter word. It's not four letters, but we think it's a four-letter word. What woman would not want to submit to the sacrificial Christ-like leadership of her husband? If that's you, you're not going to submit in any way, shape, or form. You have bigger problems than your husband. It's your attitude. The Bible says husbands are to lead like Christ, selflessly, sacrificially, and in a way that makes their wife more holy because of their influence and leadership. And wives are to graciously respect and support that position of leadership that God has sovereignly intended for men's and men and their families. And so this is not just an issue of equal rights or politics or anything of that sort, values. It is, a, it is an issue of the gospel because marriage pictures God. It's been said this way, that marriage is always the work of God, but divorce is always the work of man. Our second point, divorce and remarriage are not God's ideal, yet he regulates both through his word. Look at verses 7 through 9. Pharisees don't like what Jesus has had to say so far. He hadn't fallen for the trap. He didn't put himself into one of their predefined little camps on marriage and divorce. So verse 7, why then, they asked him, did Moses command us to give divorce papers and to send her away? Jesus said, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts. But it was not like that from the beginning. And I tell you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The first trap didn't work, so now they tried to trap Jesus again by trying to pit him against Moses. Well, Moses said... Well, actually, it's pretty interesting when you look at how the Pharisees worded their statement. They said, oh, yeah, well, if that's true, then why did Moses command? And Jesus responds really quickly, "Uh, Moses never commanded it. He permitted it. And what Jesus did is he didn't get into a toe-for-toe between himself and Moses. What he did was he simply demoted their interpretation of what Moses said. They said, oh, yeah, this is your main line of argument, that Moses commanded it. Well, go read Deuteronomy 24 again. He didn't command it. He permitted it. He took him to school quickly. And instead of trapping him, he actually used their own argument against him to say, the the Bible doesn't even support what you are trying to do here. They're, They're really mad. So here's the thing that is really difficult for us. Jesus clearly calls remarriage after divorce adultery. But then he issues this exception clause he says any man who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery except for sexual immorality now this raises a huge issue i mean i could have spent 40 hours a week just on that verse because there's so many different opinions on this so i'm not going to bore you with the details i'm going to try to distill this down practically as quickly as i can there is a Greek word called mokeia that is the Greek word for adultery. That is not the word that's used here. It would make it so much easier. That's why it's translated in your better translations, not as adultery, as sexual morality. 
The word that is used, and you don't know Greek, but you'll recognize the word. The word for sexual immorality that is used there is the word porneia, from which we get the word pornography. The English word is a derivative from that. Porneia, porneia would definitely include adultery, but it also includes every kind of sexual sin fornication, all kinds of things. So instead of using the narrower and undisputed term for adultery, mokeia, he doesn't use that. There would be no debate if that was used. He instead uses porneia. And so what some people do is they say Matthew is the only one that includes the exception clause. And the argument is that Matthew's also the only gospel that talks about what happened between Mary and Joseph. They were betrothed, and Mary was found to be with child, and so Joseph desired, desired to put her away. So people who want to make much of the distinction in words say it is not about divorce once married, it's about divorce in the betrothal. That you find out that on the wedding night, your wife is not virginal, and now you can annul the marriage. I I don't believe that that's what it is. I think the most natural reading makes the most sense. Because when you think about what Jesus is talking about here, he's talking about Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were never betrothed, and they were married from day one. Um, he's talking about this one flesh union. He's talking about cleaving. He is talking about marriage. And so porneia, while it's a broader term, it definitely includes adultery. And I think what it's talking about is any kind of dalliance inside the marriage commitment that, that um, is not sexually faithful to your spouse. And he says, in that case, there is a permission to pursue divorce. I think in light of all of these things, the one flesh union, he's talking about uh, the permission that the offended spouse has to pursue divorce and remarriage. It is permitted, it is not required, and there is always a redemptive manner that is emphasized, uh, pushing towards reconciliation. And the truth is, to, to, to summarize this teaching up to this point, I think it would be fair to say that the Bible would indicate that divorce is always, always the result of sin. Your sin, someone's sin against you, there is friction. You don't get divorced because you're happy. You get divorced because there's conflict. And so divorce is always the result of sin, and divorce is almost always sinful, with the exception of what Jesus has just spoken about here. Now also in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about the interesting situation of, uh, and he, he uses a wife, a wife who is a believer and a husband who is an unbeliever. And, and so what happens? If you're a believer and your spouse is an unbeliever, you're, what do you do? And he says, you don't do anything. God will bless your husband simply because there is a spiritual influence in their life. But if that husband says, I don't want to live with a non-believer anymore. Y'all are crazy. You know, I don't have anything to do with you. The Bible says in that case, the um, believing spouse is okay to pursue divorce and to be remarried, that she's free in the Lord, but that you are never to pursue it. And the issue here on this whole issue of marriage and divorce is it is never option A. It, It should not be the easy button. It should not be something that you seek out. And and when we talk about this whole issue of marriage and divorce, here's an analogy that I hope will help. Okay, there's a Bible verse that says that God desires for all men uh, to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Okay, have you heard that verse before? God desires for all men to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. Here's the question. Is every human being that ever lived on the face of the planet going to live in blissful glory in heaven with God forever? No. 
So what happens? God says he desires for all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, there's another thing that he says over here that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that every man who comes to the Father comes that way. God has a desire for everyone to be saved, but he has a greater and more specific desire for them to be saved this way. Everybody wants to be saved. Not everybody wants to follow Jesus. And he says, you can't, you can't separate those two. And so there are two wills in God related to our salvation. Yes, God desires for everyone to be saved, but how are they going to be saved? They're going to be saved through this way specifically. There are two wills, one that is more general and one that is more specific. In the same way, when we talk about marriage and divorce, God says generally, I hate divorce. That's powerful words. But yet here, Jesus says, you know what? This is not the original idea. This is not how God set things up. But we live in such a sinful and broken world that there are exceedingly few, but exceptions, where you can know that you're being obedient to God even though you're having to do something that is really difficult. Now here's the issue, okay? Um, Because I think sometimes in the church, we tend to think that divorce is the unforgivable sin. And when people are going through a hard time, what do they need? They need, they need grace. Churches do a good job shooting their wounded. The truth is, we don't need to back down from our convictions one whit whatsoever. As a matter of fact, the world needs to hear our convictions on marriage even more, not less. But when someone has gone through the terrible proceedings to end their marriage, to kill their marriage, they don't come out of there feeling like a champion. They come out of there feeling terrible. And for churches to pass judgment when that is God's responsibility alone is wrong for you to do. There is no scarlet A. Um, Listen, we need to balance truth. We need to say what we believe, but we need to balance that with grace in how we deal with people. It's important. Regardless, divorce is never commanded, and it is never commended. It is merely permitted. He concludes in verses 10 through 12 by telling us that both marriage and singleness are to be used exclusively for the glory of God. He's already said that pretty clearly about marriage, that we are supposed to pay attention to God's original design and how it pictures God and the gospel. But look at what it says in verses 10 through 12. Now, you've got to remember, because the disciples are not going to come off too good in this passage, remember like who their teachers were before Jesus. They had Hillel, Shammai, and Qumran, who were the... You know, they were the ones that the news anchors talked about every night. Here's their opinion on this. And so after Jesus talks about marriage and divorce, (laughs) the disciples say to Jesus, well, if the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. You mean I can't divorce her if she burns my food? You know, if she gets wrinkly or gains weight, I can't find a newer model, you know? What's going on here? And then Jesus says, not everyone can accept this saying about singleness, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs, and mom and dad, I'll let you explain what that is. There are eunuchs who have been born that way from their mother's womb. They were born with some kind of congenital birth defect where things were just not in the right place, and they are essentially eunuchs by deformity. There are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who were made that way by men. If a king had a harem of wives... Um, they would, he would have a loyal servant castrated so that there would be no sexual desire and he could put them in charge of his harem. So there are some that are born that way physically. There are some that are made that way professionally. But then look at what he says. 
And there are eunuchs who have made themselves that way because of the kingdom of heaven. Let anyone accept this who can. When he talks about the last category, people who are pursuing singleness for the glory of God, for the kingdom of heaven, he's not talking about physical uh, emasculation. He's talking about a spiritual desire that says, I don't want any worldly concerns to block me from doing what Jesus wants me to do 24-7. I think, I think the Apostle Paul says that. He says, you know what? As an unmarried man, I have the opportunity to be exclusively focused on God. I'm getting stoned to death. I'm getting shipwrecked. I'm getting thrown in prison. And I don't have a wife and kids that I need to support that's at home worried about me. I can do, I can burn myself out for God. I can be a bachelor to the rapture. And I don't have to worry about anybody else. And I think that's the desire that he's talking about. He's saying, listen, if you are married, be committed to your spouse for the glory of God. If you can eat or drink to the glory of God, you can be married to the glory of God. It is possible. God gives strength for you to do this. But if you don't know that marriage is for you, receive singleness as a gift, not a thing to be despised, and use it for the glory of God. He says, listen, uh, this is a hard thing. Singleness is hard. But there are some people to whom it is given as a gift. So here's the deal. On Christmas morning, if you unwrap that gift and you go, oh, great, it's not intended for you. Okay? If you're going to hate being single, then the Bible would say it's better to marry than to burn. But there is a gift of singleness that he gives that is to be used for his glory. So how do we wrap this up quickly? And how do we apply this very difficult passage to our lives? Well, first... We have to understand, we have to hear clearly God's word about the preciousness of our marriages. Listen, and guys, I'll say this to you because I know we probably struggle with this more than our wives do. Uh, Does your wife know that you love her because you have told her recently? Well, of course she knows it. I've lived with her for 35 years. Yeah, and you haven't told her once. So don't be a dumb block of wood. Have your words and your actions match. You know, how, how precious is your marriage? How, how are you demonstrating that? But number two, and we've mentioned this, we have to realize that we live in a sinful and broken world. And so here's, here's what I would say. We've got um, two couples in here that are engaged. Don't ask your friends for marriage advice. Not first and foremost. Go here for the best counsel that you can get. It doesn't matter what your friends say will make, or will make for ingredients for a successful marriage because they may be sincere in what they say, but they could be sincerely wrong. Base your marriage in the qualities that you're looking for in a spouse on standards that God would approve, not whether she could be on a magazine. You know, not on something carnal and temporary. Because you know what, man? Uh, everything's all nice and shiny when you first get married. and It doesn't stay that way for long. You know? Um, I gotta wear elastic on some of my waistbands now. So you know, poor Marcy, I ain't what I used. To, I'm more than what I used to be. You know, there's there's a whole lot more to love right now than there was 20 years ago. But you know what? Things start to get wrinkly and they don't stay in place. And for people that are simply attract, you know, their marriage is built on physical attractiveness, then then the clock starts ticking when you say I do. But for a marriage that is built upon the kind of love that God would have you to have, regardless of what happens to your spouse, they become more beautiful. And engaged couples and single people, I would tell you, 
Make sure that you are building your desires for your future marriage and your future family clearly upon God's Word. You know, here's one of the things that I think is really amazing because we all, I think everybody raised their hand when we talked about knowing people that are divorced. Here's the thing that happens. You, you think through the people that you know that are divorced and there are people who did not do what Jesus said to do in this passage, okay? They're divorced and it wasn't because of sexual immorality. It was not because of adultery, you know? So in that sense, they were sinful in their action. It was a sinful divorce, and yet they've been remarried and you, you watch them and they are in church and God's blessing seems to be upon them and you go, all right, so did God change his standards? Did he say, he said, don't get divorced except for sexual immorality. How can he be blessing them? You know why? Because God is always willing to start over with you wherever you are and whatever you have done if you are truly repentant. And it's not that God has changed his standard. It's that he has another standard of being a super good and gracious God. And divorce is not the final word. God's grace is the final word. And so if you find yourself divorced, perhaps not according to how the scripture would tell you to, the best thing you can do is repent as fully to God, to yourself, and to whoever else needs to be involved in that conversation. And you live faithfully for God in the situation in which you find yourself. It, it is not right for you to divorce your second wife to go back. No, no, no. You, you, just, you start where you're at. And you trust the grace of God because you see it. People who 25 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago made a bad decision. And yet God has so abundantly blessed them. What do you do if you're married here? And you sit there, I've been married all these years and divorce has never been an option. So there ain't anything I needed to listen to in this sermon. I beg to differ. We have said that marriage is supposed to be a picture of God and of the gospel. And so even though the word divorce has never been on your lips, how clearly is your marriage displaying the glory of God? How clearly, husband, are you leading like Christ loved the church? Wife, how clearly are, is your love for God being demonstrated in the posture that you take in your marriage? See, just because you don't fight or you haven't threatened with, been threatened with divorce doesn't mean there's no application here for you because God is saying that marriage singleness, whatever situation you find, is to be used most expressly for God and for His glory. And yet I hear people go, well, I'm just not happy. God wants me to be happy. He needs me out. What if God's design in marriage is more for your holiness than it is for your happiness? And yet we're so quick to put that, that, that crown on our head and to put our backside in that throne and to say, my happiness is the most important thing. No, your holiness is the most important thing because if you've been bought by the blood of Christ, you should look like him. And that means you endure some junk sometimes. And that means you, you love when you're reviled and you are long-suffering and you're patient. And that you never look for an easy out, but you always seek for reconciliation and restoration. Because God's design for our marriage is more for our holiness than it is for your happiness. But here's the thing that's really great. The marriages that I see that I would say are the most holy happen to be the most happy. Because the Bible says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and what? All these things will be added to you. Chasing for happiness is an exercise in futility. It will slip through your fingers like smoke or sand. But pursuing holiness in your marriage will be a blessing not only for you, but you have no idea how you will bless the generations that come after you.
by following God in your marriage. Let's pray. God, I don't understand the mystery of how you kind of work out our schedules and have us preach on whatever it is that we're to preach on. But we believe in your sovereignty and we believe in your uh, ability to steer us in the right direction. And God, today there are husbands and wives that have things that they need to say to each other, words of affirmation and love, words of repentance. But in all these things, God, we want to de- we, our desire is to honor you. We are overcome with your goodness when we think about what your intentions are for our marriages. And God, there are people in this room that have drunk every drop of blessing that you have had for them in marriage, and they are happy to have done things your way. And there are couples that are struggling day to day because they're not in line with what your good and perfect will is. God, I pray today that you will bring revival, but not necessarily a revival that crowds an altar at a church, but a revival that turns husbands and wives' hearts to each other, that uh, overflows into just a, a beauty of home life that is a witness to children that are watching mom and dad relate, that as these kids go to school and they see myriads and hundreds of broken uh, parenting relationships around them, as they see divorce so commonplace, they can see their mom and dad as a beacon of light and hope and godliness and goodness. God, we know that if our marriages have been successful, if they have glorified you, that it has nothing to do with us and everything to do with you. We ask that you purify our relationships, our intentions, and our desires, and that you help us to be married and to set an example of biblical marriage to a watching world. In Jesus' name we pray.